the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Today, a bit of a disclaimer in that if you have young ears near the radio, it might be a good time to busy them elsewhere around the house as uh, we get an opportunity to kind of talk parent to parent, dealing with a topic that, um, quite frankly, you do need to be talking to your children about, and this is the topic about talking about the topic. If I thoroughly confused you now, good. When we were kids, not that many years ago, I constantly remind myself, uh, we learned about the birds and the bees from a variety of sources. Usually they were peers who had either heard about it from older brothers and sisters, or maybe had stumbled upon uh, dad's magazine collection, something of that sort. And so we, we kind of came up through the process of learning about um, sexuality through outside sources. And then eventually mom and dad came along and sat down and had the talk. I remember when my dad had the talk, and I'm not sure who was more nervous about it, he or I. Well, that sense of nervousness hasn't changed much. But i tell you what has changed. The sense that parents have in terms of what the talk should consist of, what the kids do and do not already know about sexuality, and then third and perhaps most importantly, how early that conversation needs to take place. Um, we would think in this day and an age with the over-sexualization of our society that this would be an easier conversation to have. But for many parents, it's become increasingly more difficult. So at what point can we begin a meaningful and age-appropriate conversation about such subjects as sexuality, pornography, and even more serious sexual abuse? Well, my guest today has some insights on that very topic. In fact, she is the author of a new book called Five Things Every Parent Needs to Know About Their Kids and Sex. And Marie Miller, thanks for taking time to be with us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is one of those discussions that every parent knows that they should have or need to have with their son and daughter, and yet uh, I think all have the tendency to want to put it off. And, and as you suggest in the book, almost every parent today has a number of really severe misconceptions about what their child knows, when they learned it, and what the source was. So maybe we can start with kind of, uh, before we, we encourage parents on how to educate their own children on the topic of sexuality, perhaps some parents need to be educated to begin with. Sure. Um, what kind of brought this topic to mind so much that I felt like it was kind of my message to share with the world was um, my own story. I grew up a preacher's kid in a, a very conservative Southern environment and was never talked to about sex. 
and through that was um, abused by a youth pastor, unfortunately, and exposed to pornography in my teens. And this was years and years and years ago, um, and God has healed me in tremendous ways. And so I started sharing my story to high school students, college students, and then even more recently, middle school students. And what came out of years of sharing my story was learning that children as young as 10, nine years old um, are, are being abused, are exposed to pornography, and they're terrified to talk to their parents about it. They're, they feel so much shame. And so once I, I kind of saw that this was a, a very common pattern, I started doing some research into what our kids are exposed to and when and why it's so important to talk to them a lot sooner than we think is is realistic. One of the big um, issues that you take umbrage with early on and throughout the book, and maybe it's a good jumping off point for our discussion today, and that is this notion that every parent has that my child is the exception. Um, This idea that, well, uh, my son or daughter, they were raised in a good Christian home or a good Christian school or they have good Christian parents or a good Christian upbringing, and therefore we don't need to worry about such matters. I'm not going to be concerned about them sexualizing early or or getting in trouble? Because after all, we've done all the right things. What What is wrong about this misconception that many parents have, that it's not going to be their kid, that their kid is the sole exception? Sure. No, I think there's kind of a, a two-part answer to that. The first being, it's not about sheltering. Like, we can shelter our children as much as possible. We can hide them in the basement away from technology, not give them smartphones or iPads or anything like that. Um, but sheltering is not the answer. It's having a conversation is because at some point your child is going to be an adult and will need to know how to process sexualized information that they received from the world. And on the other hand of this, I was the exception. Um, like I said before, I was a preacher's kid. I grew up in a very small town that was very conservative with good values and great parents and a great home life and a small school. And, and I mean, this was before the Internet, so I wasn't even exposed to what's on the Internet now um, at that young of an age. But yet, unfortunately, as I said, life still happened and, and I was still abused by somebody and through that abuse was exposed to pornography and was terrified to talk to my parents about it. So now with the internet and apps and social media, even though you may be doing everything you can to, to shelter or to protect your child and, and that's very valuable, your child probably has a friend who has access to the internet or will hear something on the radio or hear something even at church, um, just that another child says, that they need to be prepared to know how to respond to. So we can't protect our our children from everything all the time. And it's really about teaching them how to process that. And, and, you know, the irony, Anne-Marie, is it's not that many years ago, not that many generations ago, when the whole issue of a child being introduced to such matters was a question of when it was going to happen and uh, under what circumstances the parent would introduce the topic. Today, as you suggest, with peer pressure, media, entertainment, social media at all, uh, it almost sounds like this is sort of a grace against time, meaning that they'll be exposed to it. The question is, who gets to them first and what kind of a message are they exposed to? Is it the healthy, biblically-based viewpoint on sexuality and reproduction and uh, this creation of God? Or is it the distorted view that is one that, quite frankly, for a lot of kids, I think, can um, 
can lead them to believe that this is just simply uh, a, a dirty subject. Right. There's um, so much in the world today that is changing. What values were right 20 years ago are wrong now, and and vice versa. And we, by teaching our children that the Scripture is the truth and Scripture doesn't change and giving them that perspective early on is so key to forming their, their sexual development and, and how they interpret sexual messages from the world, um, because they're there. They're, they're going to receive them, and the parents should be on the front lines of, of communicating that and being a, a valuable and trustworthy place for their kids to come to to talk about sex. Anne Marie Miller, our guest today, a look at five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. We'll deal with the big question of what about this matter of exposure to online porn and how early can it potentially begin? We'll address that question and more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. A visit with Anne Marie Miller. A look at five things every parent needs to know about kids and sex. Uh, of course, the big issue I think that many parents have always struggled with, Marie, is okay, when do we start the conversation? What's an appropriate age? Do we wait till uh, 17, 15 when they start dating? As you're suggesting, more and more these children are getting exposed to things through social media, through peers, and online at an earlier and earlier age. Any statistics out there to give us an idea as to just how young potentially they're being exposed to this online? Well, what's interesting about that statistic is that every time it's refreshed, I think I I started researching the book about three years ago, and the average age of exposure to online pornography was around 11 to 12 years old at that time for most studies. And toward the end of uh, when I was finishing the book and it was going through the editing process and review process, that number actually dropped to eight years old. Wow. So within three years, it dropped three years of, of age for children that are being exposed. And it's not like our children are going out there necessarily and looking up pornography intentionally, which sometimes is true. Maybe they hear a word that they don't know and they look it up. Um, but what's happening is that people that market pornography are, are really targeting younger and younger audiences by misspelling common names, like maybe if you type in Disney or the White House or something very common and innocent into the into a search engine and you spell it wrong or they've just created a strategy to expose your child to pornography earlier because we see in the long term that that actually ends up making money for uh, different marketers of pornography. I learned this the hard way many years ago. There was some issue going on in the political arena that I believed our listeners needed to get out in front of. And so I urge listeners to um, go to the uh, White House website and please send an email to the president voicing their opinion. And I gave out the uh, without thinking, gave out the White House address. I won't tell you what the dot aspect of it was, but it wasn't GOV, just out Mm -hmm. of habit. Right. And I got a right. couple of calls from listeners the next day that were shocked and said, 
have you seen what's happened to the White House website? I said, well, no, what are you talking about? And so we logged on, and then we were shocked too. So the irony is uh, 30, 40 years ago, you had to go looking for it. You had to go into the seedy part of town and the, the end that nobody ever went to where all the little seedy bars were located, and that's where you had to go to find uh, the stores that cater to people that purchase that stuff. Today, literally, as you're suggesting, Anne-Marie, it comes and finds you, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, we basically have pornography stores that we carry around in our in our pockets and our purses when we carry our cell phones. The The potential to be exposed to something unintentionally is so huge for ourselves and our children um, that we just really need to be aware of that. And that's why I encourage parents to start this conversation, not just one talk. People always refer to it as the talk, but I think it's a series of conversations over many, many years as your child gets older. All right, let's talk about some of the the ground rules, if we can, here. As you point out in the book, this goes beyond simply that babies don't come out of cabbage patches and things of this sort. We, we, We understand some of that. A lot of this also gets to the idea of helping to, to a certain degree, not only inoculate your child against the potentiality of some developing, uh, someday developing a, an addiction to pornography, but more and more, we're also having to teach them earlier and earlier so that they can be better protected if they ever find themselves in a circumstance where it could be anything from um, a sexual abuse at the hands of a Uh, a trusted relative, or for that matter, even sex trafficking. I mean, it's amazing the kind of horrible things that our children at such a young age, and for many parents, think of, you know, that kind of period of innocence, gleeful innocence for many of us uh, just a couple of generations ago, where you would never think about talking to your child about such matters when they were eight or nine years old. And, And today, as you're suggesting, if you haven't had that conversation at least by the time they're 10, it's likely too late. It's likely they've gotten all the details and gotten a lot of wrong details from some other source. Yes, there's probably some sort of of recovery um, that you're going to have to do with them and and kind of reteaching and refocusing what, uh, what family values you need to communicate to them. But, I mean, as early as, you know, your your bond with your child starts in infancy. So just by by being there for your child and and naming body parts in the correct way um, as early as, as toddler age um, is is really important. And so that way, when they get to be in elementary school, when they're really the most vulnerable, because a lot of predators don't think that children know what's a good touch or a bad touch. They're if they haven't been told, because a lot of parents don't tell their children. Um, but by telling your children, you know, if, if mom or dad or whoever is the trustworthy guardian, you know, can, can give you a bath and that's okay, or if your doctor is looking at you and we're in the room, that's okay. But if a stranger or a friend or a teacher touches you somewhere and, and pointing out where those places are, um, that there's no secrets. Even if they tell you to keep it a secret, there's no secrets and you need to tell me. And, and just letting them know what what is appropriate and what is not when it comes to who can touch them and, and where is okay for them to to be touched. What about the parent that is dealing with their own 
either bad or, or painful past, either because maybe they've struggled with pornography addiction themselves or have been the victims of abuse. And so for them, it's a painful topic. They're afraid to even broach it and, and, and bring it up because they're not quite sure to how to go about addressing this as it brings up issues of their own. I, I would imagine that even though that might be problematic for a parent, that should be no excuse to avoid the topic. Am I right? I'm so glad that you brought that up because you're absolutely right. Parents, I mean, statistically, half of the people listening to your broadcast right now are struggling with some sort of of sexual sin or or an addiction, or maybe they were abused. Um, Someone out there is struggling. And when we're in that situation, we think that we cannot be leaders for our children and our families. But I want to just really encourage those people that that God has equipped you and, and He has put you over your family to lead your family. They, if not mutually exclusive, you, you must lead your family and, and teach your children. And yes, you've, you probably have some stuff to deal with on your own too, and that's okay, but that doesn't mean that you can't teach your children. It doesn't make you a hypocrite. It, it doesn't make you ill-equipped um, because God has given you that role. So you are so vital in, in helping your child form their view on sexuality. And perhaps, you know, the, the lesson that you do not want to see your son or daughter either repeat the mistakes that you made or go through the painful experience that you've gone through uh, having been a victim of abuse, that, that this is really an opportunity to help prepare them to, to in, as best you can, as any parent would want to, I think, uh, in their heart, want to do all they can to protect their child. Sure. I think, I mean, we are inherently wired as parents to want to do the best for our children and, and to protect them and to guard them from anything that can harm them. And I know just within my own life, and my husband and I are expecting in July, and just the love and protection I, I have already for this child. Um, and, and we're planning now, like, when will we have these conversations, and how will we talk about our past with them? And you don't need to reveal everything about your past to your child. I mean, it's, it's definitely not necessarily even appropriate to do that. But using the experiences in your life that have been harmful to help protect your child is a beautiful way that God can redeem that part of your story. But see, you can cheat here because uh, you wait a couple of years once your son or daughter is, uh, well, probably more than a couple of years, but when they're ready to, ready to read, just say, here, mommy wrote this book with you in mind. <laughs> read it and call me if you have any questions. Yep, I've already started reading to to our child um, while while it's growing inside me. So hopefully, it's picking up on a few things early on. But now, as much as I, I mentioned that mentioned that tongue in cheek, stay with us for a minute, if you would, uh, Anne Marie, because I want to come to another another topic, and then we're going to ask Anne Marie to kind of walk us through a quick tutorial on the five things that every parent needs to know about kids and sex. And one of the questions we'll pose is for parents that feel uncomfortable at this topic, ill-equipped to address questions, or feel like you were born in an, you know, a light year away, that you're so out of touch with what the kids are facing that maybe you think, hmm, gee, if I could just give my son or daughter a book, like a copy of Anne Marie's book, or, or how about this? Just suggest they Google it. Anything wrong with that? We'll find out as our conversation with Anne-Marie Miller continues. Look at five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. Anne Marie Miller, our guest tonight, as we're talking about this topic, and more and more parents are coming to the painful realization that it's not a question of um, necessarily when your children get exposed. That's simply happening earlier and earlier. It's a question of who gets to them first. Do you get to them with the right information, the right answers, in a uh, God-centered, biblically-based fashion, or do you wait for them to learn about it from social media, their peers, or the Internet? We're talking about that very topic. And and one of the things, um, before we get to have you walk through these five things um, that every parent needs to know, Anne-Marie, is this idea of some parents that feel as if, well, I, I feel a little bit awkward about this. So I'm just going to suggest to my son or daughter that they Google it to get more information. Uh, is that bad advice? That is really bad advice. So please do not do that. Um, that's actually one of the five points that we'll get to um, as far as the five things that parents need to know is we live in a generation where when we don't know the answer to something, we just Google it. We just look it up on the Internet. And when it comes to issues of sexuality, when you do that, and especially with younger generations, they don't want to sit and read an article. They're going to Google image search that. So um, they're going to get exposed to images that are just inappropriate for them to see. All right, let's 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 walk through these five things, and you, you detail them in the book and realize, of course, for listeners that uh, this is not meant to be exhaustive. Uh, this is meant to kind of hit the highlights for you and then encourage you to get a copy of Anne-Marie Miller's new book. By the way, the book is newly published by Baker and available at Christian bookstores around the Bay Area, as well as the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And Anne-Marie, it's also available on your website. Yes, it sure is. You All right, so folks can go to, to AnneMarieMiller.com and order the copy of the book there as well. All right, let's break it down. Walk us through, if you would, the five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. Uh, the first one is the earlier the better. We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier in the show, but talking to your kids about sex from literally birth through 18 and over, um, we kind of cover what age-appropriate conversations are four different age groups. So if you have a four-year-old or a 12-year-old, um, you can kind of know what they're experiencing and what you should probably be talking to them about. Um, the second one is that your child is not the exception. And again, that's something that we, we really battle, uh, especially within the Christian community, is we think we're doing everything we can to protect our child, and we are, but that's not the answer. Just having that conversation so that when they are exposed to these things, they can know how to process it in a biblical manner is is definitely key. Uh, The third thing is just about media, Um, any type of media, TV, movies, radio, music, video games, the whole gamut. I kind of just uh, did a lot of research about what's on these different forms of media and how children are exposed to them and and the, the risk and benefits and it, it was really shocking to me, um, to be quite honest, to to watch a show that's rated for 14-year-olds and be exposed to 40 or 50 sexual references in just a few minutes. I, I was so, shocked the, the other day. I, I happened to catch a repeat of one of the movies in the Shrek series. Mm-hmm. And... I, I, I it, it hit me at so much a surprise. I, I, I didn't even at first. I thought, oh, I'm clearly misunderstanding this, until I realized that that one of the characters written into I think it's Shrek three, is is intentionally created as a transsexual. 
And I thought, yeah. oh, well, we're just keeping up with the, uh, uh, with the Bruce and Caitlyn Jenner times, I suppose. Yeah, even in, I mean, <laughs> Shrek is cute, but even like in the original Shrek, uh, the magic mirror talks to Snow White and says, just because she lives with seven men doesn't mean that she's easy. I mean, that says, he, that mirror says that in the first track. You know, the irony is that we realize that there are adults who write the scripts, who, who do the artwork, so they're going to occasionally put content in that seems to get the guffaws out of the adults in, in the audience. But, of course, they fail to recognize that the, the biggest group of consumers of that content are going to be children. And make no mistake about it, there's got to be some degree to which part of this kind of the, you know, the, the behind the scenes inside, ha, 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 let's pull one over kind of a deal. And part of it is, has got to be some intentional effort. I mean, I, I, I looked at this one character in Shrek 3 and I thought, they're intentionally trying to prepare kids for that early age uh, in in introducing them to the topic of of uh, transsexualism, which you know, given the the debate going on in this country today regarding mm-hmm. children and the use of bathrooms and and whatnot, and a bill that even here in California has been uh, facing a court challenge that pushes the very same topic. You, you would you would think that these films that are geared for children would be safe for children, but that isn't always the case. And I I suppose to a great degree, parents find themselves in the very unenviable position position of having to explain things that they never thought they would be discussing with a seven-year-old. You're absolutely right. It's it's really amazing, and, and sadly, it's become kind of the new norm um, because we have a, a set of values that's very different from what the world puts in the media. You know, we're shocked and we're, we're horrified to hear these things or to see these things, but it's just another day at the office for a lot of people, and they don't give a second thought about it. Okay, so from the media, point number four. Um, so we move from media into that whole Google is the new sex ed idea that we are a generation. We are a, a world almost where when we don't know something, we go to the Internet. If you, as an adult, if you need to know how thorough your meat needs to be cooked when, when you're making a steak or a hamburger, you Google it. Or if you want to know who sings a certain song, you Google it. And it's the same way when our kids hear uh, a word in school or that their peers say, they think that it might be a bad word, they will turn to the Internet because they don't want to turn to your parent because they're embarrassed or their friends. So they go to the Internet, put the word in, and then that's how a lot of children are exposed to pornography for the first time. And amazingly, of course, you know, again, talk about feeling your, your, your eons, light years away, where for my generation, if you had questions, you either looked it up in your Encyclopedia Britannica or in the reference department of the local library, where even if there were any of those books that might be questionable, they were, they were under lock and key. And when you walked up to the, to the reference librarian's desk, and clearly you were, you know, seven years old or 10 years old, you didn't get access to that stuff. There's nobody there with any of this under lock and key, is there? I mean, even if a parent says, oh, we put certain filters on and we're trying to do our best, the reality is, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Anne-Marie, it isn't even as much a question of your child going and looking for it, even if they are. The reality is this stuff is coming and looking for your child, isn't it? It's very true that that, that is very often the case. Okay, and point number five. Um, the point number five is that sexually abused children rarely speak up, mm. and that was something that, um, unfortunately, I know it makes every heart and every every parent quiver just a little bit to think that 
um, their their child could be sexually abused and and not know about it. My my own parents didn't know about my abuse until I was 28, and that was 12 years after it happened. And there's so much shame and stigma tied with sexual abuse that we really um, victims of abuse tend to keep quiet. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done by parents, and and one of the one of the issues here. And you, you led with it, the, the matter of um, the age at which you start to address these matters with your child. And I know that it's going to cause a sense of embarrassment or chagrin for a lot of parents to think, I, I can't really be can't, it's really talking to an eight-year-old about such things. And, you know, I think when a lot of us were, were kids of that age back uh, in the last century, uh, you know, our, if, if our parents brought such matters up, they gave cutesy names to body parts. And so we all we all kind of chuckled over it. But the idea of, of addressing your child to protect your child from such abuse or from such exposure, uh, as, as counterintuitive as it seems to be, we want to think we want to protect our child by inoculating them or, or isolating them from exposure to all of this. But again, I guess the, the big warning, if there is any from your book, is the big takeaway, Anne-Marie, the idea that they're going to get it. The question is, what source are they going to get it from and how is it going to be couched or presented? Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think, again, that parents have got to be on the front line of this. And oftentimes in, in books past, you know, people recommend getting in the car and driving with your child somewhere to have these conversations so that there's no escape. And I think that actually kind of plays into the message that there's something to be ashamed of. But it's really, I think, our, our opportunity as parents to to sit down with our child and look them in the eye and, and talk about these things and Yes, it, it's going to be a little awkward, but to embrace that and know that sex is not a dirty topic that we need to sweep under the rug. And, you know, it's this beautiful gift that God's given us to share between a, a man and his wife in, in marriage. And outside of that, the world's distorted it. But just to normalize that conversation so that your kids can feel safe to talk to you about questions and they don't feel awkward when you when you bring stuff up Um that's just really key. That conversation is really key. And, and certainly, as I think you suggest, creating a safe environment, a healthy environment in which these conversations can take place, in which children feel comfortable approaching mom and dad, too, with questions, is going to go a long way toward making sure that it doesn't take place eventually later on out of and beyond your control in very unsafe environments that can be every, every gambit from teaching uh, values that are con- contrary to the the Christian ethic, the biblical uh, uh, standard that you want to create in your home and for your child, and 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 to the 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 sad and horrific continuum of sexual abuse if your child isn't prepared to know what it is and what to look out for. A look at five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. Again, newly published by Baker Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Anne Marie Miller's website at annemariemiller.com. That's annemariemiller.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, if you think about it, I think we can all agree that we live in a fallen, sin-tarnished world, replete with all the effects that that has had on man's fallen condition. One, by the way, of our own doing, 
that, of course, uh, that impact on our relationships, first between mankind and his creator, second between mankind and his neighbor. Now, if the power of the gospel to forgive and restore on the vertical plane has the effect that it has in restoring, in reconciling our relationship with God, that reconciliation between creator and creation. Should not that same restorative power take place in relationships extending across the horizontal plane? Let's talk about that. Lisa Sharon Harper joins us. She's Chief Church Engagement Officer with Sojourners, the author of a new book called The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Lisa, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much, Craig. It's great to be here. This is a point that perhaps all of us need to be pondering. Uh, We sometimes want to limit God in our thinking, in seeing the gospel as the ability to be forgiven and reconciled and walk in restored relationship between creation and creator. And while all of that is true and all of that is predominant and, and critical and first and foremost, the story really of reconciliation behind the power of the gospel doesn't end there, does it? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I think for myself, I, I, was, I became a Christian and walked down the aisle. I like to say I jumped the broom with Jesus in 1983, August 21st of 1983. Actually, my birthday with Jesus is coming up pretty soon. Quite a, it sure <laughs> is, isn't it? I almost forgot that. Um, but, you know, I, I came to faith, and I was told pretty quickly, you know, that this is, this is really about my relationship with God, and that's it. And I took a journey just about 13 years ago um, called the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation. And on that pilgrimage, we went across 10 states in the, in the south, the northern south and the deep south, asking the question the whole way as we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience in, in the, um, on this land from slavery through civil rights. We were asking, what does the gospel have to say to this? And I had to really face a hard truth when I got to the end. I realized that if I were to share my understanding of the gospel with my ancestors, it wouldn't make them jump for joy. I don't think they would have received it as good news. My ancestors who walked the Trail of Tears, who, according to family oral tradition, and who slaved in South Carolina, if I went up to them and I said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, (laughs) but you are sinful and therefore separated from God, all you need to do is pray this prayer because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, and then you'll get to go to heaven. Would that make them jump up and down? I had to really admit the reality of no, it would not. And so that's what propelled me on a 13-year journey, really, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, and then all the way through the Scripture to find what is, how does Jesus actually communicate the gospel. Because I think at, at the end of the day, that, that sense of realization, that quickening of man's separation from God and sin and the need for um, uh, spilled blood for, for forgiveness and reconciliation is something that, we, while we can explain it, it really can only be quickened to one's heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And yet oftentimes I think we as the church sort of 
leave it there. It's sort of the one and done. And once you've, you, you've accomplished that, uh, meaning that you've, you've made that surrender, you've asked for forgiveness, you've given your life over to God. God is therefore, through the power of the work of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, forgiven us. And, and that reconciliation process begins. And, and that's wonderful and beautiful and, and all part of God's design to be sure. But God wants so much more for us, doesn't he? And that the notion of his creation living in harmony together was certainly a part of the original plan until mankind managed to mess things up there in the Garden of Eden. But That's but right. God wanted for us to walk in harmony. Disunity and the turmoil that we're living in today, while certainly as a end product of man's fallen condition, is not God's ideal for us. Well, that, that's exactly right. And actually, I have to say, this was really critical in my research. Was What I found was that at the end of Genesis 1, when God looks around at creation and says, this is very good, that that word good, tov, is really kind of a clincher, because um, it, 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 when, you, when you open up that word, you begin to open up the text. That word tov is not necessarily referring to the things themselves. It, it's not necessarily saying... God is saying, ooh, that's a good son I just made, or ooh, that's a really great platypus, or that's a great human being. No, instead what it's saying, goodness, according to the Hebrews, existed between things. But our understanding of perfection, which is really a Greek concept, exists in the thing. So when we think of what perfection as God would, um, would, would have it, Perfection, as we've been taught through the Greeks, actually is about us becoming perfect, or God's creation being perfect, and there, you know, and then defiled. But actually, the way the Hebrews thought of it was actually that the relationships were perfect. There was an overflowing, forceful, vehement goodness in the relationship between humanity and God, and also in the relationship between men and women and humanity and the rest of creation, and all of God's creation, and the systems that govern us, that the way things worked, there was only blessing, not cursing in the beginning. So when we look at what would God have for us now, what does it look like to be redeemed, it's not only about our relationship with God, though that is absolutely there, but the reality is is that when our relationship with God is well, then we live in a web of relationships relationships that then become well as well. So God um, looks at perfection or very goodness and says, if it's going to be very good, it has to be very good for all, not just some. So do we shortchange God? Do we sell him short in the sense that we tend to, and while this might seem to be sort of unique to the um, evangelical uh, Protestant believer, I think there's plenty of this uh, um, responsibility to go around, uh, no matter what your particular uh, persuasion might be within uh, the, the 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 large arch of Christendom. But do we sell God short by simply and singularly focusing on the power of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation only on the vertical plane, and somehow act as if? Uh, that same power, the ability to forgive and, and experience reconciliation um, and renewed right relationship is somehow not possible or we shouldn't bother with, our, with uh, doing or looking at that on the, on the horizontal plane? Well, you know, that's a great question. I would actually say that the way that we sell ourselves short is by lifting Jesus outside of his context. 
and outside of the context of the whole rest of the scripture. Because Jesus comes to us, was born into a long story, a story written by many authors that spans millennia and goes beyond him as well as, you know, through the cross and the resurrection and the first church and the teachings of Paul. And so when we take Jesus outside of his own context, meaning he was born in the context of a colonized, imperialized nation, the Jews, in the context of the Roman Empire, just a few years before his birth, the Roman Empire had um, squashed a possible insurrection in Galilee, where there were 2,000 people crucified at one in one day, crucified, 500 crucified after that every single day by another general who came through. The soldiers got so bored in their crucifixions that they began to place the bodies in different positions to humor themselves. That was the context that Jesus was born into. And so when, when Mary um, sings in Magnificat, when Mary sings that the, the low will be brought high and the high will be brought down low. And when Jesus says in Luke 4, I have come and I am, I've been anointed to preach good news, not to the middle class, not to those who have, but actually to the poor, to the oppressed. There were actually poor people in that room. There were actually oppressed. The whole context was a, a, a context of oppressed people. So I think that that's one of the things that, we do ourselves a disservice. We don't realize the ethical, the here and now implications of the gospel, of the scripture, when we lift Jesus outside of his context. Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of our conversation after a brief update on traffic. If you've tuned in and been late, shame on you. No, if you've tuned in a bit late, visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. I think today's some conversation to help better understand how God would have us look at these questions, look at these problems, and what kind of an answer that the gospel can bring to them in terms of realizing not just uh, God's passion for reconciliation unto us, but then to see that same reconciliation play out on the horizontal between his creation as well. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper as this edition of Lifeline continues.